0: for me this morning to be with you. I grew up over in Eastern Kentucky, a Betsy Lane High School graduate, Moorhead State University uh, in music education, as I mentioned, Uh, been in ministry 42 years, uh, pastored four churches. My first little church was the Island Creek Mission, basically two single wide trailers connected with a deck between them up Island Creek. And it was a mission of First Baptist Pikeville. And so uh, while I was the high school band director at Pikeville uh, High School, I was also the bivocational mission pastor there. And I went on from there and began pastoring full-time, left uh, the education field, loved it, still miss it at times, have such respect for those who are in uh, various uh, education fields. Uh, But I went to Belfry, First Baptist. Belfry is right in the middle of the Hatfield-McCoy feud area, if you know the region. Uh, You're literally just across the river from West Virginia. Now, you're on the McCoy side of the river, not the Hatfield side. Uh, But we had a church full of Hatfields and McCoys, uh, 10 years there. Then we went to northern Kentucky, 35 miles south of Cincinnati. It's like a different world leaving Belfry, Kentucky, and going to that, that close to Cincinnati. Uh, great folks, but more Midwest, certainly not Eastern Kentucky, and Southern feel, but very different. But we had a good ministry there. And then the last church I served was First Baptist Shelbyville, Kentucky, where we still uh, live in Shelbyville. And I've been at the convention in this role the last 10 years or so. So good to be with you. Tomorrow, Laura and I, celebrate our 41st, did I get that right? Our 41st uh, wedding anniversary. Uh, Thank you. We met as a result of her serving on a summer mission team, the Lord used that, and uh, she began to beg me to marry her shortly after that. Uh, and we've been married these uh, 41 years we have three children that used to matter but doesn't much anymore to us because we've got four grandchildren (laughs) let me tell you about them jack walker's four going on 20 clark david uh, is three walt stephen my namesake they call him little stevie sometimes they say he acts like me uh he's real handsome though and uh, he's about a year and a half, something like that, and then little baby Charlotte Reagan, nine and a half months, and uh, she's a precious thing. Uh, Mimi's awfully fond of little baby Charlie, we call her. Charlie was my, ma- my wife's dad's name, and so uh, Charlotte is named after Laura's uh, father. It's been a busy stretch for us. Like many of you, we've had a lot of our teams over in eastern Kentucky uh, some of you may have been over there serving as well. Thank you for all you're doing uh, to help those in eastern Kentucky, just like you helped those in western Kentucky with the tornadoes. You might say, Well, I wasn't able to go. Well, you still helped. You helped greatly because uh, every week part of your offering goes to support the cooperative program, which supports various ministries, including disaster relief. And so you helped greatly even if you were not uh, boots on the ground. And so thank you for your partnership, for all you're doing. I've not been over yet myself. Some of my team's been there. I'm planning to get there uh, next week maybe for a couple of days. But uh, it's been a busy stretch. A busy week for me, just like many of you. Busy time in life with four grandchildren. Busy time uh, in church life. Uh, And we've been working hard, like many of you have been working hard. And I was thinking about the gospel this morning. and, And the gospel is a message about work, but not the work that we have done. It's about the work that God did and continues to do on our behalf. We can never earn salvation. We can never work our way to heaven it's not about our sweat someone said it's about his blood I like that Uh, I wish I had come up with that and that's true and all throughout the Bible we see the gospel but one of the places we don't think about as the first place we would read about the gospel is in the book of Revelation and so this morning I want us to think about the gospel the good news but I want us to look at Revelation chapter 1, and you'll clearly see the gospel message there uh, in chapter 1. You know the backdrop, John the Apostle, John who wrote five of the New Testament books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then wrote the Revelation to the church there on the Isle of Patmos somewhere around A.D. 95. He was not there for a vacation. He was not there celebrating his 41st wedding anniversary. He was there because he was being punished uh, as a believer. He was on that remote, deserted, uh, mostly deserted island and uh, being mistreated because of his faith. Yet the Lord was faithful, and the Lord gave him this wonderful vision that we have as the 66th book of uh, the Bible, the very last book, the book we call. Uh, revelation. Pick up with me uh, as John writes. John uh, in in chapter four, or chapter one, verse four, and it goes like this: John, John the apostle, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Father, thank you for this beautiful church. Thank you for all that you're doing in this place. Thank you for the pastoral uh, and lay leadership here, Lord, and for all those who serve so faithfully in the church and throughout this community. Would you bless our time together as we revisit the truths, the glorious truths, truths of the gospel as shared here in this first chapter of the book of Revelation. We pray, bless, Lord, the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, and then ultimately, Lord, the obeying of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I did want to say before I uh, begin uh, that your sanctuary is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, Laura and I walked in and uh, we, we heard downstairs something about remodeling and uh, I don't know what it looked like before but boy it is stunning now and it looks just so beautiful so I commend you on that good work. Well Jesus has worked, continues to work, has done a lot for us. Has the Lord been good to you this week? Uh, Has the Lord done anything for you this week? Well, if you're here and you're breathing, if your heart beats another beat during this service, it will be because of the grace of the Lord. If you can take another breath, it'll be because God gave you life and gave you another breath. And in this text, we see some of the things that Jesus has done for us. First, he loved us. Verse 5, to him who loves us. Now, Jesus God has always loved us. He's expressed that in many ways. When we think of creation, you just drive to Eastern Kentucky where I grew up and look at the beautiful Eastern Kentucky mountains and obviously there's challenges there now with the flooding, but it's a beautiful place. And boy, West Kentucky and and Central Kentucky is a is a beautiful place. Laura and I recently were out in the Grand Tetons and some of you have been there. Wow, what a gorgeous place in Yosemite. We've been there a couple times. Actually, I performed a wedding, my oldest son's wedding in Yosemite National Park uh, a few years ago. And and what a gorgeous place that is. Just drive the Pacific Coast Highway, and and, uh, and you'll see uh, the Lord has made a beautiful place, and that's for us to live, and that's part of His expression of love to us. It's it's a gift to us when we think about the incarnation of of Jesus God becoming flesh that's a reminder that God loved us so much that he sent his son to this earth to live and ultimately die and live again for us when we think about the miracles that Jesus performed it reminds us that he's always powerful and he cares about people and he loves us he's always loved us when we look at him in the garden of gethsemane uh, sweating uh, uh, great sweat drops of blood and 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 agonizing in that moment about what he is uh, facing on the cross reminds us that he he loved us when we see him suffering on the cross and ultimately dying in our place it's a reminder that he loved us I love the words to the hymn. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flowed, referring to the blood from his body. Sorrow and love flow, mingled down. Did air such love and sorrow, meet, or thorns compose so rich? A crown? And that's a question. And their answer is no. Love was best displayed. On the cross, when Jesus died for us, He loved us. The gospel teaches us that while we were yet sinners, He loved us. You know the verse, Romans 5 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ di- died for us. But the text of the, the tense of this text is not past tense. Yes, it's true, he has loved us from the foundation of the earth, that Jesus was as a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth because of his love, but the tense is present tense. He loves us now. Imagine, now not Laura and me, but imagine someone who'd been married 40 years, one years that one of the spouses let's say the female says to her husband well honey uh, we've been married a long time and and I know you love me and all but you just don't say it too often anymore and so I just want to hear you say it And, and, and so let me ask you honey do you love me imagine him saying well I used to worship the ground you walked on well maybe she'd be gracious and say yes you you did, and you've displayed that in many ways through the years, and I appreciate that, but that's not what I ask. I ask, do you love me? Imagine him saying, I used to think you were all that and then some. She might still be gracious and say, well, you did, and you've shown that, and I appreciate that, but, but I'm not talking about back then. I'm talking about now, and so I want to know Do you love me? What if he said, Well, you used to be the cat's meow. I don't even know what that means, but I think it's something positive. And I used to think you were the cat's meow. I used to dream about you at night and daydream about you all day long. Eventually, her patience would wear thin because she didn't want to know, Did you used to love me? She wanted to hear I love you right now. And yes, God used to love all of us, but the text is present tense. He loves us right now, but it's also future tense. He will always love us. Sometimes when we have done pastoral counseling, I don't do much of that anymore, but there's been some times when a couple will come in and they'll share their stories. And then they'll say, one of them will say something about like this. Well, we just don't love each other any longer. And I think it's possible, if you don't continue to fan the flame, I think it is possible. Sad, but possible to fall out of love with someone. Well, the good news is, when we read the end of the story, we know that will never happen with the Lord. The Lord will never fall out of love with us. He has always loved us. He loves us present tense, and He will love us future tense. Paul writes it this way in Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, past tense. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could I get an amen on that statement? Amen. What a wonderful truth that God will always love us. And His love's the highest form of love. You know the term. It's an agape love. Meaning that God's love is not contingent upon anything. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. God loves us because He is love. And Jesus personified that. And so what has Jesus done for us? He has loved us. Secondly, he washed us. Verse 5 of our text. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. English Standard Version. I like that translation. But look at the King James Version of verse 5. I like the choice of words here. Unto him that loved us and Washed us from our sins in his own blood. He washed us. we're We're clean. We're free from our sins. I was talking with someone before the service who travels quite a bit and and I travel uh, quite a bit as well. Around Kentucky, a few times a year, we'll fly here and there to various uh, meetings or or training, something like that. Uh, and uh, we like to travel. Laura loves to travel. Uh, she has a whole itinerary plan uh, for when we retire, places we want to go. But we're trying to not wait until then. We're trying to see some places uh, along the way now. Uh, and I like a lot of things about traveling. But one thing I don't like about traveling is the size of that bar of soap they put in the hotel. It's about the size of a good-sized postage stamp. And how in the world, since they don't really want to come and clean your room for a few days while you're there or give you more soap, how in the world you're supposed to stay clean for two, three, four days with that one little or two little bars of soap? I don't know. Well, thank goodness we don't have to try to get clean from our sins with a bar of soap. We're not washed that way. We're washed by the blood. Revelation 1-5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Uh, King James. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Now lots of folks don't like you to preach about the blood anymore. A lot of folks have just cut that out in their sermons. They say, well folks don't want to hear about the blood it's, it's gory, and it, it's not pleasant to think about Jesus dying on the cross and shedding His blood and us being washed in His blood. And I agree, there's nothing pleasant about that. But that is the core of the gospel, that Jesus loved us so much that He spilled His divine, perfect, sinless blood on the cross, and we are cleansed by His blood. My grandfather, on my dad's side, Papa Elmer, we called him, uh, he lived up a holler about a mile. If you're from eastern Kentucky, you know about hollers, and uh, that's how we say it back there. Uh, I'm here in the big city, so maybe I should say hollow, But, but I think you know what a holler is. And so we lived right at the mouth of Rice Branch, and he lived about a mile up. He had two half-brothers. One of his parents died early in life, and they remarried and, and had other children, and he had two half-brothers. They both lived right above him up the holler. He, he owned both sides of the road, uh, the land on both sides of the road, so to get to their house, they had to go by his house every night, and to go to work, they had to go out by his house. They always kind of had an interesting relationship. I think they liked each other, but I wasn't always sure the way way they interacted with each other. My grandfather was a big softy, but he wanted to always act like he was rough and gruff, and he was kind of a little bit showy at times. So he used to do something with all his trees and fences called whitewashing. Know what it means to whitewash a fence? Basically, all kinds of different formulas but basically you'd have some kind of paint. You'd usually water it down. You might put some some lime or lye, I don't know what all you put in there, some chalk or different things in there and you'd mix it up. It's basically kind of watered down paint and you would it was always white and you'd paint your tree from the from the grass up about I don't know, about eye height. And if you had a wooden fence, you'd paint your fence, whitewash your fence too. And I think my grandfather would do that every year, basically to try to show off to his brother Georgie and Willie, look, I can afford to whitewash my trees and my fence every year. I never thought to ask him. I'd love to have asked him. But uh, he usually hired me out. I was pretty cheap labor. He hired me out, and I would be the guy doing the whitewashing. You know that whitewashing, if you like that look, it looked great for a while. And then the rain and the storms and the weather or the winter, eventually it would just kind of wear thin and you'd have some spots that would see through. And if you wanted it to look good, you'd have to do it every year. Or it would wear off and just not look good. Well, I've got good news. Being whitewashed is not the same as being washed white. When we're washed white, it's not seasonal. When we're washed white in the blood of Jesus, it's not temporary. When we're washed white in the blood of Jesus, it doesn't merely cover our sins. It cleanses us from our sins. When we're washed white in the blood of Jesus... It removes all of our sins and all of its stains. And so the obvious question any Baptist preacher would ask any congregation at this point would be this question. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's how we are to respond to the gospel. And He will wash us in the blood of the Lamb. Well, He loved us. He washed us. Lastly, He elevated us. Look back in Revelation 1 verse 6, and he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. That verse tells us how high he elevates us as a result of the gospel. You might ask, well, Brother Steve, how high has he elevated us? Laura and I have been to Israel three times. We'd love to go back again. If you've ever been once, you'll want to go again. I've heard someone say, a search committee said, well, one thing we want to guarantee that our next pastor, uh, about our next pastor, is that he's never been to Israel. And someone else said, why? And the person on the search committee said, because our last pastor went to Israel. And what they meant by that is that's what he talks about all the time. When I went to Israel, hey, I went to Israel. I saw this in Israel. But it's that kind of place. It changes the way you read the Bible. I, kinda, I feel like I read it in, in living color now instead of black and white. And, and all three times we've been there, we went on top of Masada. The first time we rode the tram up. And Masada, of course, is, is uh, Herod's winter palace overlooks. Uh, the Dead Sea uh, and a beautiful place up there. Uh, over 900 Jews fled to Masada during the persecution of the Roman Empire during the first century. Many of them committed suicide in order to not be killed by the Romans. Some of you know that history. Uh, the second year we went, we decided to uh, climb Masada, not ride up on the tram. And so we walked up the two mile. What they call it, uh, they call it a snake path. And we walked up the uh, the path to the top of Masada. Masada sits about 1,300 feet above sea level. It's not real tall. Uh, you say, Pastor, has he elevated to 1,300 feet? No, higher than that. That picture that you see on the screen, uh, we're at Glacier Point, the highest point in Yosemite National Park. You can see Half Dome in the background. We hike from there down to the park's uh, floor, I guess they call it. Uh, it was a great, great uh, day of hiking. I think maybe 11 or 12 miles, something like that. A lot of it was downhill, a little bit of it uphill. Uh, but Just a glorious day, beautiful views everywhere. We're standing in that picture at 8,200 feet above sea level. You say, has he elevated us 8,200 feet? No, higher than that. We've ridden the cog up the side of Pikes Peak and we stood on top of Pikes Peak 14,114 feet. You say, Pastor, has he elevated us over 14,000 feet? Yes, but higher than that. I've never wanted to climb uh, Mount Everest, but it interests me. I know I couldn't do it. I'm afraid of heights. I know I'm not have that kind of stamina. I don't have enough money to be able to afford to go and do that. But it's interesting. I've watched lots of documentaries about it and read some books about it. 29,035 feet, the highest mountain on earth. You say, has he elevated us to the height of Mount Everest? And I would say, yes, but higher than that. We call it the, an SBC doctrine. We call it the priesthood of the believer. And here's what it means. It means you don't need a Baptist pastor in order to talk to God. You don't have to go sit in some confessional booth and have a priest be in between you and God for you to be able to speak to God. No, you can go to God directly through the blood of the Lord Jesus and you can talk to the God of this universe in prayer, personally and privately or even corporately yourself you are a priest in your own right and you have direct access to God through Christ we see literally the curtain of the temple was torn when Jesus died on the cross Matthew twenty-seven fifty, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain was there because once a year, only once a year, the high priest and only the high priest could ceremoniously go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain of the temple and talk to the Lord. And, and the curtain, when Jesus died on the cross, was torn from... Top to bottom, not torn halfway, torn all the way. Showing symbolically that you have direct access and I have direct access to the holy of holies. You can speak to God directly yourself through Christ Jesus. He elevated us. God has done so much for us. He has worked on our behalf when you go to israel you always visit the garden tomb all three times while we've been at the garden tomb we've after touring and after going in the tomb and by the way good news it's still empty uh, still empty he's still alive but every time uh, we've been to the garden tomb we've taken the lord's supper the tour company we've worked with would always give us a small uh communion cup uh, made out of olive wood olive wood is a big thing in Israel a lot of carvings are, are made out of olive wood and uh, some of the some of the really well-known artists will, will sign their pieces uh, and uh, they're worth let's just say a lot of money we've never bought anything like that we bought some simple things uh, that are meaningful to us But every time we take the Lord's Supper, each of us have gotten, uh, along with the others in our group, one of these small olive wood carved cups. So we have six. We've been three times. We have six sitting on our mantle at home. All reminders of our trips to Israel. But you know what? It doesn't matter what kind of cup you take the Lord's Supper from. Because the cup is not what's symbolic. It's what's in the cup that's symbolic. The juice in the cup, as you know, symbolizes the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that cleanses us, washes us from our sins. We also have always taken, of course, the bread that's about what it looks like in that picture that's actually a picture from Israel and uh, from the garden uh, tomb where we took the Lord's Supper, I can remember my first church one Sunday we were about to take the Lord's Supper, we looked in the cabinets downstairs and the ladies putting it together, at the time the ladies did it, not sure, it was always the deacon's wives and they said preacher, that's what they call you a lot of times in the mountains, preacher uh, we're out of uh, lord's supper bread and i said well why are we out of lord's supper bread they said well, i don't know that's your job and i said well i didn't know that was my job uh, i said what are we going to do they said we don't know that's your job and i said well i'm going to food city and so i ran to food city or i drove five miles to south williamson all the time thinking what looks like lord's supper bread what looks like lord's supper bread And I had what I thought was a brilliant idea. And I went through the aisle and found some oyster crackers and brought them back. And we put them in the communion uh, containers. And that morning, we took oyster crackers for the Lord's Supper. They taste pretty good, but that one one little cup of juice is not enough. Uh, after you've had an, a salty oyster uh, cracker, so it was difficult to talk after taking that. But it doesn't matter. It's not the type of bread exactly. It's what the bread symbolizes. It symbolizes the broken body of the Lord Jesus. So what has God, what has Jesus done for you? Well, it's the gospel, the good news. He has loved you. He has shed his blood for you. He wants to elevate you to a a priest, to a joint heir, a brother, a sister with Jesus. And so this morning I ask you, how will you respond to the love of Jesus? How will you respond to, to the offer to be cleansed in the blood of Jesus? How will you respond to God's offer to elevate you to a place of sonship or daughtership. I'm going to ask for bow our heads. Musicians are coming. We'll have a time of commitment. A couple of us will be down front. If you have a decision to make today, certainly if you want to respond to the gospel for the very first time, if you're here without Christ and you say, oh, I want to be a Christian, I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven, I want to know for sure my sins are are washed away, then we'll be here and just come and just say, I want to be a Christian. We'll, we'll understand, we'll help you as you make that most important decision. Maybe you've been attending this church for a while and you've been looking for a church home and and you feel right at home here, you feel like the Lord's leading you to bring your membership to this church. This would be a great Sunday to do that. I know Pastor Farmer would not want you to wait if if that's what God is saying to you uh, until he gets back. He would say, No, go ahead and come today. And we invite you to do that. If you're here as a Christian and God has spoken to you about some area of your life, and you would just like to. Have us pray with you. I spend a moment talking about it. We'd love to do that. And so we invite you to in just a moment when we begin to sing. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this good text. Father, I pray as we think about your love, we think about the blood you shed, we think about all of your present and future promises as sons and daughters of God. Lord, we're just so grateful. Lord, we know this is earth and this is not heaven, and what awaits us is far better than words could even express, but Lord, you've been so good to us even now here on earth. So many of us have good families, and we have places where we serve and work, and we're grateful for those. You've blessed so many of us through the years with good health. And even, Lord, those who, whose health are not as good as they would hope it would be, we're grateful for wonderful medical facilities. On and on, Lord, you've been good to us here, and we acknowledge that. But, Lord, we're especially thankful for the promises of the future thankful that so many of our loved ones are in your presence waiting us to arrive at those pearly gates to spend eternity with them and with you. Lord, we look forward to that day someday, but Father, this is a moment when we can continue to work and continue to serve you. Help us to be faithful, even now during this time of invitation. Help us to respond in just the way you're leading us to do so. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. You come as the Lord leads.